Hello and welcome to In the Days of Noor with me, Noor, where we talk about Islamic-related topics and social issues. Today we are going to be talking about the limits of woke culture. And alhamdulillah, we have Imam Dawood with us. We're also going to touch on a couple of other topics, including his books. He has uh, three books out right now. And inshallah ta'ala, we'll get to discuss that as well, as well as some relevant social issues. Assalamu alaikum, Imam Dawood. Alhamdulillah, thank you for joining us. So before we get into the topics, I wanted to just touch on your background for those who may not know you, they should know you, and I wanted to just talk about a bit of your your own personal background. I don't know if you grew up Muslim or became Muslim. Um, no, actually, I'm a I don't like the word we work too much, but I am a convert in the sense that I come from, uh, let, we could use the term interfaith background. Mm. Uh, but my my parents divorced when I was uh, at a very young age. Okay. And we moved to New York and then to Virginia when I was about six or seven years old. So my mother is a Christian. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, I was raised mm. uh, as a Christian, going to okay. uh, Sunday school and church and all of that. And mm. really, um, what sparked my interest in Islam, and of course, Allah is the one who gives guidance. But uh, as, as my father used to try to encourage me to read the autobiography of Malcolm X, mm, and Allah. would try to you know, take me to Jummah prayer on Fridays mm-hmm. when I would come to visit, I wasn't interested. Mm-hmm. But what what really got me interested in um, Islam was actually uh, hip hop culture of the late nineties mm-hmm. and excuse me of the, of the late eighties and early nineties when mm-hmm. I was a teenager and it was through uh, rap music that kind of piqued my interest in reading autobiography of Malcolm X then uh, a book on Islamic history uh, that I read in That's kind of my journey of coming to the faith. Okay, so yeah, I didn't know that you came from an interfaith, um, I guess, marriage or your parents being of two different faiths. And um, I know that I've spoken about that maybe just once or twice on Twitter, but it was a good conversation about Muslim men having this permission to marry outside of the faith, but that a lot of the times, at least in in the West, in a majority non-Muslim country, it actually isn't a great idea and that a lot of people turn out or become non-Muslim or not practicing Muslims. So do you feel like you were the exception to the rule or, or do you know of enough people who had a Muslim father and later embraced Islam? I think it's, it's um, I think there's some differences that we can look at generationally speaking, also geography. Mm. There probably needs to be a very in-depth study done yeah. upon this, but from what I've seen, most uh, people uh, who come from uh, backgrounds in which the father and mother are of different religions, mm-hmm. and if the if, if if those parents end up not working uh, out in their marriage, that mm-hmm. more than likely those uh, young men and young women end up growing up. Uh, not being Muslim, uh, from right. what I've 
interesting. So I would agree with what you're saying that uh, there's probably the exception and not the rule, at least anecdotally speaking, that um, it's, it's not really a good look for for Muslim men to marry uh, non-Muslim women. And I would say that at best in the American context, it would be makro, mm, uh, especially based upon the ruling of Omar bin al-Khattab. May Allah be pleased with him. Mm. And the reasoning why he told Hudayfa al-Yaman, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, uh, during the khilaf of Omar to divorce the, uh, the, the woman from the book that Hudayfa had married. Mm, wow. um, and um, yeah, and this can be seen in some of the tafsirs, like the tafsir Tabri mentions this mm-hmm. uh, in his tafsir as well. But um, Omar uh, found to be uh, a repugnant uh, and uh, this was something that he discouraged during his khilafah for mm-hmm. a Muslim man to marry a non-Muslim woman. And Sayyidina Ali uh, gave the same opinion that mm-hmm. a Muslim man should not marry a, a Jewish or Christian woman uh, over a Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if there are single Muslim women available, then right. it's not jayiz, it is not... Um, it is not uh, permitted mm-hmm. uh, for Muslim men to go around marrying uh, a woman of the book. And that's the opinion I hold, especially here in America, where we have a surplus of qualified single Muslim sisters mm-hmm. uh, who aren't finding um, uh, suitable mates. And then the Muslim brothers are running out mm-hmm. marrying uh, Becky, Susie, mm-hmm. and you know, Shaqu- Shaquita, and you know, who, who aren't even, who are most times not even, uh, they're not even Muslim that. That's the other criterion that was given in the Quran. They're supposed to be chaste women right. from the people of the book, and that they can't be at the mm-hmm. club turning turn up and involved in and all sorts of other activities. Right. Um, then they're, they're not even, they're not, they're not even awful to marry to begin with. Mm, you know, that's so, like, of course, we don't want to get too deep into that subject, but that's so valuable that you mention that because some of the the rulings that we just know of in general as Muslims, they really do need a lot of context before we can properly practice it. Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah. So you mentioned that you read, um, the, that your father gave you a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I'm actually reading that right now with my students. I'm teaching high school and the 11th graders, they're reading it. And they're really fascinated by it, really moved by his account. So that's interesting that you didn't feel, was it that you didn't feel particularly moved to become Muslim or you just weren't particularly moved by the book at that time in your life? Oh, no. The autobiography of Malcolm X moved me once I picked it up. I picked it up and it was... Basically, I wasn't motivated to read it when my dad first gave it to me, right? So then, Mm -hmm. but you have to remember, like, it'd be, uh, well, I'm sure you do remember, or maybe you're not young enough to remember from the Mm -hmm. listening audience, but in the late 80s and early 90s, because of hip-hop mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. and like Spike Lee's movie about Malcolm X, it became, right. it was yeah. kind of like socially cool to be a Muslim in the right. African-American community back then, right. you know, yeah. and, you know, people were walking around wearing Malcolm X baseball caps mm-hmm. and uh, everyone in the hood was saying, assalamu alaikum. <laughs> yes. And even the, the mm-hmm. conscious awoke people, mm-hmm. I didn't say woke, we weren't using that term right. back then, but the, the conscious 
the conscious yeah. thing was talking about not eating pork. Mm. Uh, has had Ali book was popping about, you know, about the, uh, she wrote a book about the, the negative effects of not eating pork. So it was kind of seen to be mm-hmm. cool. And mm-hmm. because it was cool uh, and, it, and it was hip, uh, in the in the culture yeah. that you know it, it kind of motivated me more than than you know than, than my father just saying oh this, mm. you know why don't you read the book right so, right yeah and that's probably typical teenager right <laughs> right yeah okay so that that makes a lot of sense and definitely um, I remember even if vaguely the impact of Islam on hip hop and it's still here today like. Um, I don't remember the song, but there was some Nicki Minaj song that came on. And I was really surprised to hear her say something about inshallah and mashallah. And so it's like those remnants are still there in hip hop culture. Uh, no doubt. I mean, even, I mean, it's strange because they'll mm-hmm. rap in or they'll have gangster lyrics and say inshallah. But I remember hearing a yeah. song by Rick Ross. Mm-hmm. And he he was talking about doing something illegal, and then he's like, "Inshallah." It's very bizarre, but no, look, there there is that influence. I, I mm-hmm. think that it was in the early nineties uh, when when a number of us um, started coming to the dean. Um, it was it just was more popular, and it was less of the materialistic vibe, you know, right. in rap music, you had the poor righteous teachers or so-called mm-hmm. Bible centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, later on you had, um, what was the name of that group? Did they come from your, from, from your, uh, your way? Uh, mm-hmm. That group of Black Star that most definitely was in from Brooklyn. Oh, you know, okay. and you had that mm-hmm. song, like, like, my only says, shine oh, yeah, the world. Yeah. You know, all of that, right, Tribe Called Flex had some songs. They mm-hmm. were saying some things about uh, things like that. So, I mean, you know, but the early 90s, mid-90s, that just was a different time. Yeah, it's so amazing. And, you know, we weren't planning to talk about this, but it, it is really fascinating to me kind of where rap kind of has gone since, I can say that when I was young, it was already getting pretty bad, but there's sort of this oversaturation of the materialistic and hypersexuality. And then also this this kind of weird culture of what can you even call it? I don't know if you've seen how some of the popular rappers look just their look. They look like people who do drugs and live in dirty places. <laughs> like, to, to, I don't know, just to put it in sort of a, a simple way, like the colorful here. They look like they're dressed up for Halloween. Yes. <laughs> I'm just, I, just, I ask my students about this sometimes, like uh, someone they were asking me about, and I was like, uh, something I said about him, I don't remember, but they were like, oh, you know him. And I'm like, I don't know what he sings. I just know how he looks because they look just so strange and so different than at least in my time, I feel like, or when I was younger, there were still sort of gender norms. <laughs> and even that is right. kind of being eroded in hip hop culture. What do you think that comes from? What is that about? Uh, I think that I, I, I don't believe in things just happen coincidentally and I mm-hmm. think that there is um, there's a scheme and there's an agenda that's being pushed mm-hmm. and given that rap music 
is the most listened to genre, not just in America, but in the Western world. I mm. believe that there are people who have their designs on society, uh, who are trying to redefine things, who are trying to right. uh, uh, eliminate certain social norms, mm-hmm. or have promoted certain rappers, have, have helped uh, set certain uh, trends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the majority of people are like sheep that can be easily led. And, uh, and we know that, you know, um, our Muslim brother Dave, Dave Chappelle talked about mm-hmm. why he quit his show and got out of comedy because they were trying to throw him up in the dress. Right. Right. But right. then, but then, you know, Jaden Smith, who's rapping now, Will Smith mm-hmm. and Jada Pinkett Smith's son, right. you know, they, they, he's wearing dresses and then they have him, all, you know, <laughs> on the on the cover of being the lead model for women's wear or yes. uh, for a major uh, clothing company, right? So, I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's kind of evident, and I know some people may say, what I feel like a conspiracy theory. Well, mm. there are such things as real conspiracies. We even have an American law. There are, uh, uh, there's RICO, and there's, like, people can get indicted for conspiracy to commit certain crimes. Like, right. when we say That's something's true. a conspiracy, there mm. are real conspiracies, and I think that yeah. uh, all of this stuff with guys well, with uh, with pink hair, yeah. And sometimes wearing dresses and looking like ghouls and goblins. I don't yeah. think this is coincidental. I think this is a, a, a conspiracy. Yeah, and also, just one other thing, then I'll, I'll get off of this one, but also the face tattoos. Like, I, when I was younger, and I don't know when exactly it happened, but it was a very dramatic and almost like you must be a really crazy or really dangerous person to have a face tattoo. And when I see some of these modern rappers, it is so common to have the face tattoos. I just like, I, it's just, I'm so shocked sometimes by how much the norms of just my generation a couple of years ago have changed so dramatically. Well, in American culture, I mean, the precedent for for face tattoos in in 20th century, coming to 21st century America, comes from prison culture, Mm. right? And and, and tattoo tears. I mean, it's not like in some Bedouin Arab uh, 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 cultures or in in Africa where uh, women would use certain facial tattoos or men would use certain tattoos or Mm. like, or certain signs to show what tribe they're from. Like, that's mm-hmm. not the origin of it in America. I mean, mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, um, even when the, when the jeans became saggy and were dropping off right. people's behinds, right. I mean, uh, all that comes from, from prison culture. It's mm-hmm. jail culture. Right. Right, yeah, that sadly has really impacted our, our normative culture. So we wanted to move to the topic of activism, but before we get there, sort of in a more general note, then did Malcolm X's book, or maybe the the, the impact of Islam on hip-hop, um, or the music you were listening to, the particular artist, did that first compel you to get involved in activism? Uh, I think that may be a part of it, but also, as I mentioned, that my... My father was encouraging me to read Malcolm X, but I didn't pick it up, right. uh, you know, readily because of his direct urging. There's no doubt about it that the seeds 
that our parents plant in us. They, they may take years to yeah. bust out of the shell and bust yeah. through the soil to reap yeah. fruit, but uh, I think that a lot of my involvement in activism does relate to my father and my father's background. So mm-hmm. I just mentioned something about him. My, my father grew up in the West Side of Detroit. Actually, mm-hmm. he went to high school across the street from the Nation of Islam, mm-hmm. Temple Mosque Number One. Uh, he heard uh, Malcolm uh, preach. Mm-hmm. Um, then later on, he, he heard uh, Imam Jamil. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Allah freed him of his unjust incarceration. Mm-hmm. Uh, he heard Imam Jamil later on preach uh, as well later on. But my father, he was, um, his draft number came up for the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And my father was inspired by Muhammad Ali, may Allah have mercy on his soul. Mm-hmm. And so my, my father ended up not going to the uh, Vietnam War and listed himself as a conscience objector. Mm-hmm. And he risked imprisonment, and he, he didn't That's go to funny. Vietnam either. Okay. And after my father didn't go, he was involved in the, uh, some called the anti-war movement, really the peace movement. So my father mm-hmm. was organizing and protesting uh, against the Vietnam War, and he, he got arrested. Um, mm-hmm. He got arrested right here in Michigan for being involved in protest against the Vietnam War. So um, that's that's some of my, probably some of my my background and Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps uh, rebelling against some of the uh, societal uh, positions that, you know, I feel that are unjust, that are done, you know, uh, against people outside the status quo. Mm -hmm. I, I, I believe that those seeds were, you know, planted me you know as a, as a young boy mm-hmm. wow mashallah yeah so your your father was already an activist and may i just ask what was his particular objection to the vietnam uh, war well it was similar to like what muhammad ali articulated and inspired that basically mm-hmm. um you know it it was against his beliefs of fighting an unjust war and also this is around the time of coming off of the, the waning of the civil rights movement. But basically, you know, people in, in people in Vietnam weren't uh, lynching black men. They weren't mm, raping right. black women. Right. You know, they're, you know, Vietnamese were never involved in Kim Crow. Um, yeah. You know, my father knew as many people back then that, you know, Ho Chi Minh had actually uh, visited had been American actually had attended Garveyite meetings or meetings of, of Marcus Garvey's movement. Wow. Uh, he, uh, Ho Chi Minh wrote about the horrors of, of lynching and what happened to black folks. So, mm-hmm. you know, my father didn't see any moral imperative to, uh, to, to kill or fight people that actually had some sort of, uh, affinity or struggle against white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and my father saw uh, American imperialism as an extension of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So. Right. Yeah, mashallah. And it's it's important for us to remember that history because, of course, all of these things can be forgotten and what exactly the Vietnam War was about and why people objected to it. Um, and some say that that was kind of the, that the World War II actually was the last just war that America fought and thereafter the remaining wars or the wars we fought since then have all been unjust. 
Um, but we can we can move on from that just to go to woke culture in general. So you mentioned something that I think is just sort of an interesting, maybe smaller point that we didn't call it woke in the past. It was more so called consciousness, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what is that? Think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the conscious community today is different from 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 being so called woke, and I think okay. that those two groups maybe even will will maybe even critique themselves. But it is an idea of being of being woke as one seeing themselves outside of the status quo, outside of what is called uh, the, the the majority ruling class. And I believe that today what many people consider to be woke is in fact uh, veiled Marxism or veiled Marxist type thought. Okay. And many people don't even know that, you know, what they're saying or some of the worldviews that they have adopted uh, aren't grounded in in true spirituality and really informed mm-hmm. by Marxism. I can give you an example. Within those who are so-called woke, who basically have had a woke agenda, a woke platform given to them, uh, like one popular term that's used amongst woke people and woke activists is like solidarity. Yeah. We have to show solidarity with this group or show solidarity. Well, how that word solidarity is being deployed and the expectations that come straight out of Marxism. If mm-hmm. one were to read uh, the writings of Karl Marx or read what later Marxists have said and the whole terminology of solidarity and how it's, how it's meant, these same woke people and these activists are talking about we have to show solidarity and I say we have to be intersectional with our movement and show solidarity with this group. This is this is this is classic Marxism. Mm-hmm. This is classic Marxism. And what do you see as the main well, first let me ask you, what would you say is classic classic Marxism in the simplest way? How would you explain that? Well, Marxism seeks to create a utopia on earth by by tearing down the, the, the current power structures or social structures and in doing so and of course we have the language of the the bourgeoisie which is the ruling class and the proletariat right. are supposed to be the masses kind of like what we have what's called the 99 percent and the one percent i think bernie sanders are kind of like begin to popularize more yeah. uh in in, in that building that utopia or justice, it is then said that social structures that exist within society, uh, they are inherently created by the ruling class to control the masses. Therefore, they have to be dismantled and they have to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. So when we hear terminology or certain things uh, such as dismantling patriarchy, for instance, right? Right. That, That is really the ruling class. The ruling class are white uh white straight males therefore Mm -hmm. this is considered to be the dominant class the ruling class and patriarchy is part of a system of oppression so therefore patriarchy has to be dismantled within this context which then in dismantling patriarchy then this also is then becomes the removal of gender so then there are no gender boundaries and then Men, women, and or or for there to be the utopia, or that women are are supposed to do everything 
exactly the same or have the same access as men in every single thing, within therefore men are supposed to take a step back and be more passive and if they don't they are trash. Right. You know, so I mean that's 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 really what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna a lot of good points there. And I think um, a part of it is this idea that everything is socially constructed, which also kind of takes it away from any kind of divine meaning. Like if if gender is just socially constructed, there's no deeper meaning to it. So I only act this way as a woman because society told me to. I've been brainwashed and I can unbrainwash myself. There's nothing deep about being a woman or about being a man, right, Is, is what they would say, right? Yeah, exactly. Right to the point that we've gotten to the point now in society and so-called gender justice where they say that sex and gender are two different things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, someone can be genderless or be gender fluid, mm-hmm. right? Or be uh, a- a- asexual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it's very, Muslims have to be very careful uh, falling to this woke culture, right. uh, which is based in theory, which includes critical race theory and informed by mm-hmm. Marxist thought, thought as well, mm-hmm. um, that we stay grounded in, in, in our tradition and sound creed and also, uh, you know, sound methodologies that helps us and uh, how we view the world so that we can sift through these things and say, okay, well, you know, this may be a legitimate grievance, but the means and the language that are being used to address mm-hmm. perhaps one part of a legitimate grievance may be illegitimate, and it may cause more harm in the long run. And mm-hmm. you mentioned the issue of gender. Like, for instance, I talked about this last year at the last Black American Muslim Conference that, mm-hmm. you know, Allah mentioned there are two genders, the that's it, right? <laughs> and, and these, and these come about at birth. And even right. when one is a muhannet or a hermaphrodite, mm-hmm. which happens in very, very extremely rare cases, and yeah. that's not what a so-called trans person is not, not a hermaphrodite, mm-hmm. uh, whichever uh, genitalia most predominant, that hermaphrodite, a muhannet, is then still uh, given uh, a, a, a gender, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're still known in society as that gender. And that's done at a, like at a, at a very young age. It's not when a person mm-hmm. becomes eight or nine years old and wakes up one day and says, oh, I, uh, I'm a boy, but I feel like a girl today. So then the parents mm-hmm. take the nine-year-old to get castrated and hormone yes. uh, mm-hmm. therapy, like what's happened. Then two years later, the, 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 the person says, oh, I feel like a boy again, and his life is ruined, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, yeah. and we know cases like this. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, so we, we have to be very clear, and in the name of woke solidarity, we, we just can't, um, we can't just buy in or go along with the, with the crowd like a bunch of cattle being herded. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I see a lot of Muslim activists uh, falling into this trap, hence uh, why I felt compelled to write um, uh, my book towards sacred activism mm-hmm. that came out about three months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and inshallah, we'll we'll talk about the books, all three of your books, inshallah, in a bit. I do want to ask you one thing. I'd like you to define critical race theory. Um, and then also, how do you, well, one, what are the common flaws you see 
Muslim activists participating in? And how do you approach someone in that space to show them the, the flaws or the errors that they're engaged in? Well, uh, critical race theory is a big topic and it comes mm-hmm. out of critical theory. It's informed by critical theory, which I said comes out of Marxist thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a way of looking at um, people who have been um, marginalized in society and how to uh, rectify systemic uh, challenges in critical race theory mm-hmm. is really talking about race. I would say for anyone who wants mm-hmm. to read about that more, they can read some of the writings of Derek Bell, who is considered, uh, he, he passed away not long ago, he's considered to be the father of, of, of critical race theory. But one okay. of the postulates that critical race theory puts forward, which I disagree with, mm-hmm. is, and maybe it's the issue of semantics, but it's this issue of, of racism, right? And racism equals prejudice plus power. Therefore, a, a person who is black cannot be a racist, right? Uh, because black people have never held uh, positional power in society. Therefore, a black person can't be racist. Mm-hmm. And that white people who are in the status quo are the, are, are, are the purveyors of, of racism. Um, I kind of disagree with that issue of, of, of simply racism means prejudice plus power because that lowers the definition of racism only to profane sensibilities, meaning that there is no spiritual, uh, it's not informed by spirituality, right? It isn't informed at first that racism and how it's played out is actually rooted in a spiritual disease Mm -hmm. or a spiritual malady, right? It's only looking at simply outcomes and not addressing uh, inward states and really the remedies that that uh, critical race theory puts forth to solve the issue of racism or combat it, which again is based in Marxism, there aren't spiritual remedies that are put forward to cure the hearts and minds, really the psyches of people. Because at the end of the day, uh, all types of laws can be passed, civil rights laws, affirmative action can try to change. Uh, housing laws and things like that, but if the hearts of human beings are filled with with spiritual maladies, with 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 kibber, with arrogance and kibber that shows itself out, and other types of maladies that inform racism, then that's not really uh, solving the problem. And in fact, mm-hmm. it could just invert, um, it can invert, it can invert power dynamics where one group of people that were once the victims of racism could end up gaining positional power and then and themselves end up uh oppressing other people you know mm. and, and they were the oppressed group and i think that a good example of this is what took place with jews who come out of western europe and who were subjected to hitler and the holocaust yeah and they were oppressed, and when they had the chance to get positional power, even though That's they're not cool. supposedly considered fully white folks, when they had the opportunity to be over top of of, of Arabs, then they repeat some of some of the same dehumanization uh, uh, and, and racism that was done to them, and that's because they didn't deal with their inward selves. Right. You know what? That, and that's they got a, land, the political mm-hmm. power. That was it. 
Right. And I, I think that's such a powerful point because it's like if we're not focusing on the bigger issue the issue of racism itself then it's almost as if as just as you said because i'm black i cannot be racist so even if i have a ton of power then nothing i ever do can be racist and i think that does happen for sure with jewish people that it's like you cannot criticize jewish people or israel at all because they're seen as the oppressed group even though they now have power because of just the way the dynamics have been defined they can never be the oppressor right and if i can go back to the issue of of positional power and i have we, we have proof and in, in the quran itself about how that uh, that definition of racism is simply prejudice plus power doesn't hold water for us in our in our um, in our tradition. So we have the the story of the angels and and those in their company being commanded to bow down to Adam, and all of them did except the beliefs, as the Quran says. Mm-hmm. And then when God, who already knew the answer, questioned Iblis about why he's not bowed down, then Iblis said. I'm better than him. Mm-hmm. You made me a fire, you made me a fire, but you made him a clay. Now, in that in that story, when Allah told the angels to prostrate, he said also that he was making a khalifa or a vicegerent in the earth. So Iblis before was the leader and his leadership was mm-hmm. being replaced. Mm-hmm. So, Iblis did not have positional power over Adam. Adam was the mm-hmm. one who would give him positional power over Iblis. Right. Yet, mm-hmm. as Sayyidina Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, said mm-hmm. of Iblis relating to this 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 part of the Quran, he says, That's Iblis is the enemy of God, mm. and he is the imam, or the leader of the racists and the tribalist mm. ones, and he's the salaf or the predecessors of those who displayed their arrogance. So it shows right here mm-hmm. that one can be racist, and one can then try to display arrogance towards one, even if they have lesser positional power. This is literally the story of Iblis. Right. Iblis didn't have positional power over yes, Adam. So right. that... But but Iblis is the father of racism, and racism is satanic religion. Hmm. Wow, yeah, that that's a very powerful point. Definitely not something I thought of, right? He wasn't in a position of power when he discriminated, or I guess we can say the power was shifting in that moment. And, um, yeah. And, yeah, that that's a really good point. Um, Iblis never had Iblis never had positional power over Adam, right. and to this day, Shaitan does not have positional power over humankind. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't have, a, and that's what the Quran says that he does not have. Shaitan does not have authority over us. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have authority over us. Right. Right. right? So, uh, but again, if we're looking at things through a critical race theory or through a Marxist lens, and not through the a Quranic paradigm, mm-hmm. a Quranic ethos, then, you know, we'll, we can easily draw false conclusions thinking that we're woke. Right. 
Right. That That's pretty powerful. And there's one thing that I definitely copied from you, and which is that you usually say racism, white supremacy, when you're talking about the racism of whites against blacks. And I do, you know, honestly, I didn't think of a lot of the things you're saying now, but I thought that was valuable simply because, at least before you said what you said just now, the definition of racism, it is about prejudice. It's not about this larger um, structural issue that people bring in. It's sort of a redefinition of racism, but we can definitely talk about white supremacy and its effect in our society. But I guess my difficulty is I get what they're saying in that in a typical situation in America, Black people don't have a lot of power over white people or very rarely ever do. So if they are racist or prejudiced, it's not really going to affect the the white person's life. Um, whereas white people being racist definitely can affect the life of black people. Um, but I, I get what you're saying as well. To take it to the extent that black people can never be racist is is probably not accurate. Right, right, and we're not seeing proportionality because definitely if someone holds positional power, the impact or the the harm or, or, or the or, or the dark, as the words in Arabic, of their harm uh, will cause more harm. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about it. But to make the blanket statement that black people cannot be racist or that black people can't harm white people even through as individuals, if they if they have racist or prejudiced thoughts, that is not true. I mean, a, a, a black judge could be on a bench and hold animus towards white people and can make a racist ruling against white people, mm -hmm. right? That it, 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 it's, I mean, we, we act like there aren't black judges and mm -hmm. black people in politics and black police officers who, who could act through, um, through the hate that hate produced or mm -hmm. through hatred or animosity towards whites based upon the harm that white supremacy has done to us mm -hmm. can't, can't, can't harm white folks. Um, of course, it is more prevalent and, and, and more uh, overwhelming, we could say, coming from the status quo of supremacy, uh, white society. But it's not to say that black people can't be race. And also, again, if we only look at material, if we only look at racism from a physical or materialistic lens, then that becomes problematic because anytime we do something or hold, uh, racist ideas or say things against other people, like that's sinful, like that does harm to our hearts. Like there's, so even if there's now, right, even right. if there's, even if it doesn't harm another person, like we're not responsible for what other people do to us, but we are responsible right. for our actions. Like, we're not going to be held accountable for what other people do to us, but we're going to be held accountable for what we do. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 I, I'm, all I'm saying is that we need to take a, be a little more nuanced right. and kind of look at these definitions in a more holistic way, starting from, uh, from a spiritual perspective, because that's the foundation of where our worldview is supposed to be, not materialistic or not, or not, or not physical first. Right. Yeah. One thing I do want to ask you with that is how do we, 
and this may sound strange, but I'm going to give an example. How can we correct racism, white supremacy, especially the historical racism, white supremacy that has happened in this country without being prejudiced? And what I mean by that is, for example, there's a lot of evidence, and we just know it to be historically true, that people tend to favor white people in many different lights, whether it's a job, whether it's for marriage, whether it's for leadership, whatever it is. So that someone, let's say, for example, they're having a conference and they they happen to invite two white speakers and someone says, you know what, why are we privileging these white people? They, whatever, let's say they're all qualified in the best case scenario, but they feel like firstly, they're maybe more qualified black or brown people and that they don't want to continue this privilege of white people and whiteness. So I guess I feel like there's a tricky area where you may have to be prejudiced in order to correct racism, or do we just not try to correct historical racism in that way? Oh, we definitely we, we definitely try to uh, correct it. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And to have a certain... Uh, sensitivity, but I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it bias or prejudicial, prejudicial in the sense that it holds negative, uh, that those, those, those terms hold negative uh, connotations, right? Mm-hmm. I would just say to take corrective action or take corrective measures, which of mm-hmm. course I don't disagree, by the way, with all the remedies put forth by critical race theory. Like I don't told, I don't totally disagree with the idea of affirmative action, for instance. I don't, right? I'm just saying that we shouldn't take everything wholesale from Mm -hmm. these philosophies without first looking at things through a Quranic paradigm. Uh, We can even say that the Prophet use a type of of affirmative action, and I will give you an Mm -hmm. example, right? Sayyidina Bilal, he is very well... Um, he's very well celebrated as being the first Muaddin mm-hmm. uh, and the only Muslim to go on top of the Kaaba and call the Adhan at, at Mecca. But what is left out that many people don't talk about in his biography is mm-hmm. that though he had been formerly enslaved and was poor, he was one of the closest companions and he was the first cousin Beitamel. He was the first treasurer of the Muslim Right. Uh, wealth, and he was the one mm. go to collect and also dispense the sadaqah and the zakat. When people came right. to get sadaqah, it was Sayyidina Bilal who was the one who was responsible for distributing the the, 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 the charity and the humps that people would mm-hmm. give to the Prophet, so Allah related by Sallam. Right? So, uh, were there other people that were spiritually qualified? Of course, we would say that that Sayyidina Ali was spiritually qualified, or Jaffa Dembe Talib, Abu Bakr Siddiq. But uh, I believe there was a reason why right. Bilal, and this wasn't because he had a beautiful voice that the Prophet had him go on top of the Kaaba and call the Adan. I, I believe there was a deeper reason right. why he had Bilal be, be the treasurer. I believe there's a deeper reason why the last commander that the Prophet, Ali Salam, uh, was appointing over the Muslims with a teenage black companion, Osama mm-hmm. bin Zayd, mm-hmm. right? I, I believe there was something in deeper. I mean, even the companions themselves, like how many people would question today, or like white people question affirmative action. Well, 
why is he getting this position? I mean, some of the big companions actually balked and didn't want to follow Usama and ask mm. questions. Well, why is he getting this position? Mm. And the prophet had to right. put them in check and had to correct them, mm. right? So I believe that there was a type of, of affirmative action to try to lift up people. And of course, they had merit. It's not like lifting up people who don't like merit, but I believe he lifted up certain people um, who were outside the status quo uh, as a symbol of how society should be and to lift people up. I, I believe this was type of affirmative action, but I know best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, alhamdulillah, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. So it's more about carefully looking at critical race theory or what people might even not realize that they're following, um, which critical race theory is behind it, but we would call it woke culture in our time, and really just trying to assess it through an Islamic lens. So I wanted to just lastly on this topic, and then inshallah we can go into your book on sacred activism, then I wanted to ask you about this idea of privilege. What do you think about this? Well, you mentioned it a little bit um, a little while ago, this idea of this hierarchy that white men are the most privileged, they're on top, and then some would say black women are on the bottom. And the that we want to, we want people who have privilege to acknowledge their privilege. And then, honestly, I'm not so, sh- so sure what the next steps people want are, but they certainly want people to acknowledge their privilege. What do you think about sort of this, I guess, partly confrontational culture, but even just the idea of privilege and people acknowledging their privilege in society? Well, okay. Um, firstly, privilege, as some people would call it, is not inherently evil. It's only when that privilege is not it's used in unjust ways. So the Quran itself and Islam itself uh, recognizes some types of privilege and some types of social hierarchy. I mean, Allah specifically Mr. the Quran that he, he gave people certain fuggle over other people or people are given different darajat. He gave people different darajat over others. Uh, the Prophet Islam, was giving uh, a rank even over other prophets. Um, the, uh, the the prophet وسلم, said, "Ella imma min Quraysh." That the imams from Qur- come from Quraysh, and it has been understood traditionally by uh, Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims. Uh, not just a prayer leader, but the Khilafa should come and be held from Quraysh, right? So this is mm. this is a fuddle. This is a fuddle that 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 Allah gave to 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 Quraysh, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so we are not exempt, or we can't say that uh, because Allah gave people or put people in certain positions over others, or gave people certain merits or certain gifts over others. Mm-hmm. That that is inherently evil. It's only when those people take uh, their their gifts or given the, the the position or privilege that they were given uh, mm-hmm. and use that to 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 suppress people, then that's where it becomes problematic. So when it comes to privilege itself, what do you see as? Because as I said, I'm not completely sure what the goal is. So what do you see as their goal? in focusing on privilege? Is it that they want people to um, just simply acknowledge it? Is it that they want people to 
forsake it? What do you think is the goal of, of just the idea of acknowledging one's privilege? Um, well, I mean, when, when a lot of people say check your privilege, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, much of it is based in like real grievances. Like there, mm -hmm. there are some real grievances in society where, where white people have suppressed and marginalized the not only uh, economic mobility, but even the aspirations uh, and the self-worth of non-white people. There are, uh, there are precedents in American society, uh, and, 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 and Me Too has, has, talked, has shed a little light on this, mm -hmm. where uh, men who have positional power or privilege in certain spaces over women have used that to, to prey on women, yeah. to uh, exploit women, and taking to sexually assault women, mm -hmm. right, with no consequence. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of this has come out with the whole, uh, uh, what's that called, mute, mute R. Kelly, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, there are some legitimate grievances behind this whole thing about, you know, checking uh, privilege, but the, a lot of times the, 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 the problem then becomes that in order to check one's privilege or, they, or the call of people to give up their privilege, is then those people want to then become the leaders. In fact, they, they have aspirations for having privilege over those mm. who, have, who have privilege over them, which then just brings forth a new type of tyranny. And, and even, like, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, this, this whole women's march movement has been going on right, where... You have um, this issue where they say, oh, it's time for men to get out of the way so women can lead. Yeah. But if you look at something like, let's say, the military-industrial complex and of uh, the biggest corporations that are involved in the military-industrial complex in America, they're all led by women. So what is the <laughs> aspiration is you've had warmongers who destabilize countries who bomb countries, with the, uh, they, they've lobbied for countries to be destabilized, who, who create weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. And since World War II, they've been ran by men. So then, okay, so we replace the men and have women right. uh, as CEOs, have women on the boards of the, so that women can equally be bloodthirsty murderers. Like, is, is that right. really the goal? Right? And right. <laughs> I think that's, a, I think that's, I think that's, I think it's really insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a perfect cartoon illustrating that of some people, I guess in Iraq or Syria, one of these countries, and it showed the bombs coming their way. And they said, well, isn't it great? It's coming from women. <laughs> and it's like, you know, obviously that would not be the response. And, and what what I think is worrying to me, which which I don't find valuable, is if the goal is simply to have more women and more minorities doing the same things that privileged white men have done, what is really the point? Just a change of face, but not a change in, in action doesn't really seem to be valuable to me. And hence, this is where the spiritual basis has to come in. It just can't be tearing down structures in order to invert the structures of having different people of different genders and different Hughes, um, then it's a new type of, of, of tyranny. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I remember Imam Wakti Muhammad, the uh, Allah's mm -hmm. mercy be upon him, soul, uh, his soul, he said that basically capitalism 
and Marxism or socialism, he said, in essence, they are basically uh, the, the, the same thing. They express themselves differently, uh, they, but really they come out of the same type of godless worldview. You know, mm-hmm. even though, right. you know, the conservative capitalists will say they're very different from the so-called woke leftists or the woke right. uh, democratic socialists, but it is really uh, a, a worldview that is based upon dominating other people. Mm-hmm. They're both, they're, they both result in, in two types of tyranny, right? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, alhamdulillah, very good point. So we're going to take a small break, and then we're going to come back and talk to Imam Dawood Walid about his book, Sacred Activism. conversation on the limits of woke culture and we want to inshallah ta'ala get to some of the solutions that Imam Dawood puts forth in his book about sacred activism so what is your and it was released about three months ago you mentioned right that's correct okay so what is sacred activism about and what is sacred activism okay um well the the book, as well as Sacred Activism, is a call towards uh, activism that is rooted in uh, transcendent uh, beliefs and sacred means, in terms of meaning those, those uh, objectives based upon transcendent beliefs. So the book is basically uh, an effort uh, along with other efforts of trying to uh, give basically a primer or some guidelines or some parameters for those who are involved in activism uh, uh, in terms of an attempt of keeping their activism rooted in something that is based upon the, the agreed upon uh, uh, tradition within our Islamic theology and and Islamic uh, jurisprudence. So that is really what uh, towards activism is about and the the objective behind calling people towards sacred activism. Okay. And I don't know if you saw this movie. I didn't see it myself, but there was a animation movie made about Bilal and who, and it seemed to paint him in this light of being an activist. So I want to ask you, would that be a correct way to view someone like Bilal radiallahu and who or even the Prophet said it was Saddam and um, if so or if not who would be some examples we can look to that we can call activists 
Well, if we're looking at activism within the framework of enjoying what is wholesome and just mm. in society and enhancing that and prohibiting or forbidding that which is unwholesome or unwholesome and unjust, which is known in our tradition of then I would say that all of the prophets and all of the awliya Allah or all of what we could call the saints Mm. in their own ways were all uh, activists, though I would not necessarily use the term social justice activist as used and ascribed to people today. But they were active in bringing uh, about enhancing the good in their societies and to interrupt injustice. I think that this was the this was the the, the role of, of, of God's prophets and messengers and the 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 Ali the, the Allah. So uh, that's uh, I I would say that is uh, I could say that with with mm-hmm. with strong conviction that that was all a part of their missions. Okay. And I think that the distinction people make, maybe not with the prophets, may Allah have peace on all of them, but with scholarship and activism is, I, I suppose it's more of a critique that scholars are often um, distant from the people, that they often don't understand the day-to-day issues that people are going through, and that activism or activists go into the community, they know the community well, what the community is dealing with, and have more practical approaches to justice. Do you think that's a fair criticism or even just a fair distinction? Well, there's always there's always been scholars and there always will be scholars in the day of judgment mm-hmm. that are connected with the common folks, with the regular people, with the grassroots. Um, so I, I, I try to make these distinctions um, as being, uh, you know, all. But I would say that there is a type of quietism that is entered into Muslim societies, especially among Sunnis, uh, historically, where many scholars have uh, not not be- not only become aloof to the general issues that affect uh, people on the grassroots and the oppressed, but are also mm-hmm. actually uh, tools. Mm, of of oppressors who are tools uh, of regimes and they use they use interpretations of the tradition as a type of political quietivism Mm. to actually uh, shut down those who are trying to bring about social change and injustices which then the effect of this is those who are oppressed or have a sense of justice because um wanting justice in the fithra of every human being um, at birth, uh, then many times those people say that, you know, we don't need to listen to any scholars. Yeah. Uh, and then many times those people don't have any proper tarbiyah or they are disconnected mm-hmm. from the tradition. And, uh, I mean, we can see this happening in the Arab world in particular mm. in the 60s and 70s. And this is nothing new where we see activists getting in type of like uh, Marxist type circles and language. Well, uh, Pan-Arabism and and Marxism, you know, uh, uh, came about and was strong in the the 60s 
and the uh, the seventies uh, in the Arab world because of this mm-hmm. <clears throat> quietism and people seeing that the scholars uh, weren't not only not concerned with the the uh, not showing concern I should say for the welfare of the oppressed but also working in cahoots with mm-hmm. with with dictators mm-hmm. uh, who were suppressing uh, the masses so uh, that's. Right, and and that's one of the the major reasons why there is such a lack of religiosity in Europe because of their history with the church being so connected to those in power who were oppressing, and so then religion in general becomes the enemy. And I think I've heard this also the sentiment with quote unquote conscious black people that the church in particular can keep black people having this sense of. Um, I forget the quote this person used specifically, but kind of like, you know, forget about what's happening today, like giving you this dream of the pie in the sky tomorrow and this lack of focus on making life better now. But then I guess the activists can go into the extreme of actually believing that if they work hard enough, they can make the world a perfect place. Yeah, I need both two extremes. So... You know, this dunya, this world, is not meant to be uh, uh, fully Jannah, nor to be fully Nah, right? It's not meant to be uh, a paradise. This is, this is the abode of tests and trials. Uh, but nor is it meant to be uh, an abode for, for perpetual torment, right? Okay. And um, this is the... This is the balance that needs to be struck, and for Muslims who are involved in activism, that <clears throat> we should be guided by what uh, the ancient Greeks called virtue ethics, right? Mm-hmm. So that number one is the realization that this world will never be a utopia, mm-hmm. and we should never expect it to be a utopia, though we strive to make the world a better place. But right. how success looks like, or what our metrics for success is that if we have a righteous objective and we have a clear intention on doing or meeting that objective for the pleasure of God, then it also means that we are using means that are pleasurable to God. And once mm-hmm. we combine these three assets, these aspects, then this is success. And we leave the result in, in, in God's uh, control because we don't have ultimate control over outcomes, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is how sometimes people can fall into despair in their activism because they actually yeah, think absolutely. that that if they make enough coalitions, that mm-hmm. they actually do this and work hard, that they're going to live to see the results that they were going to. And if they don't mm-hmm. see the results after working on this campaign and doing this, this, and that, Mm-hmm. then they fall into despair or take more radical means, right. which could mean stepping outside of that which is acceptable. And uh, Imam Ghazali, may Allah be pleased with him, mm-hmm. said that we don't, we, don't, <clears throat> we don't repel a munkar with a munkar, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't, we don't seek to right. prohibit an injustice through vulgarity, through indecency, mm-hmm. or by transgressing the parameters of our sacred law mm-hmm. so but but again that is what success looks like but we're going to be tried we're going to be tested and uh and, and allow through his wisdom 
he he allows uh, groups of people to rise up to 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 be over others, and it's a yeah. test for them and a test for us about how we're going to mm-hmm. handle it. But it's just the remembrance that in Allah, like Lucy and Kadia, Allah is in the ultimate control of outcomes. Not us who are activists are thinking that right. you know if we do this and if we're woke enough, then mm-hmm. and tear down everything, then we're going to get what we want in this in this life. That's not how it works. Right. Yeah, and that that just makes me think of uh, I once had an exchange with someone where they were saying, um, basically that black people just a, the small statement you said that people are are risen and people fall by Allah's command. And I think that this idea of maybe it's critical race theory, or I'm not completely sure where it falls in line, but just this idea of privilege and and the woke culture, while I understand it and in some ways appreciate it, I do think it can leave people oppressed. So it was a a woman I had an exchange with who was saying, well, black people are oppressed all over the world. (laughs) And I asked her, uh, because this, this thing of like black people are just on the bottom, we always have been and we are all over the world. And I asked this woman, have you traveled outside of the U.S.? And she said no. <laughs> so I'm gonna, as someone who has traveled, I'm not going to say there's no racism across the world. But at least I didn't experience it in particular. And I certainly didn't have the same kinds of regular fears that black people have in the U.S. And I, and I do feel like there's a despair we can get into as black people if we sort of take in all of this philosophy that we are oppressed, period, and that we're just at the bottom, especially with them saying that black women are at the very bottom. I There's a part of me that understands what they're saying, but doesn't understand the usefulness of it. Yeah, and, and then there's no such thing as universal black. How black is understood exactly. in the West or in America is different than how it's understood in, 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 in Sudan, for instance, mm-hmm. right there. So there is no one universal black and i think i actually saw the exchange but mm-hmm. what's what kind of of the of the schizophrenia mm-hmm. is that some of these same woke people who are black folk will then talk about how great and how excellent more spain was i mean mm-hmm. and in that in that whole conversation they completely erase right. or wipe out islam exactly. and they talk about how you know how moors and black people rules ruled the Iberian Peninsula for almost 700 years. Mm-hmm. Well, if those were Moors and you say that there were black people amongst them, that <laughs> means that black folks didn't rule over white folks for, yes, for, exactly. for 500 years, right? Exactly. Uh, it is to say that Hannibal was a black man and went into Europe and conquered Europeans. Mm-hmm. It is to say that the, the Abraha and his, and his forces, Ethiopia, conquered the Arabs, the Arabs never conquered Ethiopia, mm. right? So it's like it's a it's a a historical mm-hmm. uh, reading of history. Uh, it's no doubt that uh, white supremacy through colonialism and imperialism has been a a, a dominating oppressive force in the last four hundred five hundred years. But uh, it is to say that. Uh, Black people uh, throughout the world don't view things, or even blackness, the same way as African Americans yes. in general view blackness. And then we mm-hmm. try to superimpose our views of blackness or our views of oppression exactly. on black people uh, throughout the th- throughout the world. And that's not how it works. And I can say that also 
I know you're well traveled. I've I've traveled to uh, 20 different countries, uh, a number of them in Africa, mm -hmm. uh, from North Africa and West Africa, and that's just not how it is. Right. Inshallah, yeah, I just think it's important to know, and that probably comes from what you're saying, besides traveling, which is the first-hand experience, but it also comes from what you're saying of understanding that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, really through the Qur'an, gives us a timeless view of the world. So, yes, we're oppressed, and this is our, our situation now, but still, it's a limited situation. We haven't always been oppressed. It hasn't always been white people on top, black people on the bottom. It has changed, and I feel that there's actually more hope in that narrative, that reality, than what some of the social justice activists say. Um, but I did want to ask you, within your book, what's some of the specific advice that you give to activists? Well, I would say, firstly, I deal with this issue of definitions, as I kind of alluded on with some other things. but. Mm -hmm. Definitions are very important because uh, if we don't have sound definitions or ambiguity in definitions, and how are we going to reach justice or social justice activism if we're unclear on what is the definition and parameters of justice, right? And mm -hmm. so this is the traditional uh, Asuli uh, methodology. Like if one reads a, a, a book of Asul fit or studies it, then you see that, ain't, that when Asuli scholars deal with a term, uh, they first give a linguistic definition and an operational definition mm -hmm. before discussing how it is applied, right? So mm -hmm. what is justice? So I first start yeah. talking about what is justice, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, since uh, Allah is al which is loosely translated as justice, it, it more deeply means that it is Allah who is the one that Puts things that puts everything in its proper place that it's intended to be. So when human beings are operating on the first level, from the from the parameters that Allah set for human beings and asset and aspects of life to operate upon, and those rights that are given by God, when those are respected, that's what justice is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and when people transgress those or take those away, that's injustice. Mm -hmm. So everything that people say. May, that they say is justice may not be justice. And everything mm -hmm. that people say may be injustice may not inherently be unjust, mm -hmm. right? But so that's like a, a very beginning, like starting point. Like uh, our, our, our morals and our ethics are not subjected to public opinion polls. We don't believe in the democratization of, mm -hmm. of, of, of sacred values. Um, so that's the, the first point. Uh, I then talk about the, uh, the, the connection between enjoying the good and forbidding the evil and activism of its foundation, the Amogul Mahruf and Nahi Mungar. And then, but also the adab of that. Mm -hmm. And this is also, uh, important because I mentioned that as we should have secret objectives, we also cannot use profane means in order to reach sacred objectives. Mm. And so this includes that we have to have adab, which means giving everyone and everything its proper due, its proper place and time. So adab yes. means more than just manners. It's to give mm. everyone and everything its proper due, its proper place and time. Mm -hmm. So I go into the discussion about the adab of enjoying the good for being evil, which should first start off 
with having a, uh, a type of moderation and lenient tone, like as Allah told Musa and Harun, mm-hmm. uh, when they went to Sinaon, who was a black man, by the way. You see, he's the biggest mm-hmm. oppressor mentioned in the Quran. Mm-hmm. He's black. And Allah said to them, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, worse than being on earth, and speak to him in a mild tone. Least he remember or fear Allah. Right? So they didn't, Moses and Aaron didn't go to Pharaoh from the jump street and mm-hmm. cuss him out and call him a profane name. They didn't mm-hmm. yell at him. They didn't say, Yeah, Shimar, Right. But, you know, they didn't like shot him down. They mm-hmm. actually went to him in person and they asked for an audience and um, you know, they didn't shot him down or call him out first, mm-hmm. right? So it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's we have, we, we, we just have to be reminded of these, we have all of these all of these things in the Quran and in, in the traditions about how did the Prophet, Islam, deal with oppressors and unjust people? How did he deal with people that committed injustice who were Arabs who did injustice against non-Arabs, like mm-hmm. how he tricked Abu Zar and what mm-hmm. he did to Bilal. Mm-hmm. Like, we have all of this, but yeah. it, it's a way of how you do the correction, right? So I discussed this in the book. I also give um, uh, uh, a small chapter defining what is the difference between allies and coalition partners, or what's mm-hmm. the difference between allyship in, in a coalition, this term allyship is, is, is abused and overused amongst mm-hmm. social justice activists, including Muslims, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we have, we, we have, Allah tells us who our allies are, who are our awliya, that's what awliya, its first meaning doesn't mean saints, its first meaning means allies. Mm-hmm. And Allah tells us who our awliya are, our allies. And, and it's those people who agree on transcendent certain transcendent values and principles who believe mm-hmm. in certain things that are transcendent not not simply worldly objectives um and we can be in, in a coalition with people who are of different faiths or even in a coalition with people who are secular muslims and work with them uh on one particular issue uh though we may be motivated or see uh, the root cause, perhaps slightly different, mm-hmm. but at the same time, those aren't necessarily our allies, and okay. we don't have to do quid pro quo, like the Quran mm-hmm. has a principle in a particular ayah where Allah says, You cooperate with each other based upon piety and righteousness, but don't cooperate with people based upon simple matters that are forbidden or haram mm-hmm. and enmity. So we uh, can be in coalition we can be in coalition with people, but it doesn't mean that those are our allies, nor does it mean that just because we were together on this one thing that we have to scratch their back in so called solidarity. Right. Right. Then the book also and I use one chapter giving LGBTQ engagement mm-hmm. as like a case study example like mm-hmm. how far to go and don't go with homosexuals mm-hmm. and, and, and lesbians mm-hmm. and, and and people who call themselves trans and then the last thing is i deal on this issue of spiritual care is the last chapter 
where just like uh, an activist world, they talk about self-care and eating right. right and getting enough sleep and exercising. Well, what about spiritual care? What mm-hmm. about spending some time every day to for contemplation and zikr? Uh, right. The importance of suhba, the importance of having a spiritual guide, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, uh, since Musa was one of the greatest messengers of God, and he had a sheikh, or he had a guide, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. if, if one of the greatest prophets need a sheikh, then I think it's foolish for an activist to say that they don't need a spiritual mentor, or they don't need a guide. Right. Like, like, So I mentioned that, like, like, if someone's going to be an activist, they need to get a spiritual mentor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's, a, that's a, a quick synopsis of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I just spoke about it recently at the uh, in Windsor, Canada, mm-hmm. at the at the Windsor Islamic uh, Association. I spoke on it uh, there and did a book signing. And mm-hmm. uh, in late 2018, uh, I was at uh, Seekers Global with uh, Sheikh Faraz Abani mm-hmm. and Sheikh uh, Badib, and uh, I did a two-day workshop on the entire uh, book because there's a workshop. Set up around the entire book, and then we did a uh, we did a Q and A up in Mississauga, Ontario, which is close to Toronto. Mm-hmm. Mashallah, that that's really great. And do you have? Was there a full course available at Seekers Guidance, or just the two day workshop? Well, I went there for the inauguration of the uh, uh, Certificate of Islamic Activism course that they have, uh, they kicked off at Seeker. Uh, there's been an interruption in those classes oh, I see. due okay. to some uh, situations that have taken place uh, in, in in Seekers. And plus, Sheikh Faraz, mm-hmm. he was traveling with Habib Omar in, okay. uh, in South Africa. Okay. And now, right now, Habib Omar is in, um, is in Jordan, um, okay, where they're doing the ziyarah to the Shahada of of the Battle of, of Muta, but uh, mm-hmm. I believe those should be um, those should be picking back up uh, soon uh, okay. uh, this year in 2019. Are there any events that you have coming up around around this subject? Yes, I am actually about to leave on a tour of Western Canada. I'm mm-hmm. going to uh, Edmonton. Uh, then Regina, Saskatchewan, then Vancouver, and then um, uh, Skatoon, I believe is how it's pronounced, North City in Saskatchewan. So I'm going there for six days talking about issues and relating to this book, Sacred Activism. And then uh, I will be in New Jersey, New York area. I'll be at Rutgers University uh, on January 31st. And then Friday, I will also be in in, uh, in New Jersey uh, speaking about uh, this topic uh, as well. And then the following day, Saturday, I will be, inshallah, at uh, MIB in Harlem. But it's speaking okay. on the subject of my other two books. Okay, inshallah. So those are some of the, those are some of the things that are coming up uh, relating to the book in Canada as well as in New Jersey. Okay, inshallah, that sounds great. So people can can find your book on meccabooks.com and then also, inshallah, catch you on the tour. 
The last question I want to ask on that book before hopefully we can get into the other two books a little bit is do you find that people who are already activists have reached out to you in any way, been helped by the book, have been open to the book, or are you getting more so people who are just trying to get started in activism being more open to your book? Uh, it's been a mix. It's been a mix yeah. of both um, people who are a little older. Uh, I did a training for a Muslim women's group in, in, in Chicago mm. um, a little over a month ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, the organization that services Muslim women. And then I've also had some receptiveness from, uh, from some in the MSA, oh, uh, MSA yeah. circle. So it's been, mm-hmm. it's been kind of... Um, I can use the word kind of multi-generational as far as some of the interests. Mm -hmm. Um, Where there hasn't been interest, where there has not been interest are those people who are professional activists who are like working for Muslim organizations who've been doing it for a while. I haven't received any interest from people in this group. Um, Mm -hmm. Perhaps they think they are, are operating okay. They have yeah. no need for the book, but I haven't seen any interest. But Alhamdulillah, I've gotten a lot of um, good comments from a number of uh, of Shiyu who who read the book and mm-hmm. you know recommended the book from to their students from uh, the California Islamic uh, University is out in California. To um, of course, Imam Zaid, who wrote the introduction. Uh, has recommended the, the, the book to people, uh, Sheikh Faraz, mm-hmm. uh, and a number of other, um, you know, uh, imams and scholars who have, who have recommended this book to their students. Mashallah. That's really great. And I, I do wonder, um, and it kind of seems that, that this has been the case, that people have been in the activist space already. It might take some level of humility <laughs> to to come to your book and and try to accept um, some of the, I, maybe I shouldn't say arguments, but at least the way you present that they should approach activism because if you have been in that space already, you're already steeped in some of the, the theories that we spoke about, like critical race theory and Marxism. So you might not be as open, but inshallah ta'ala, the book will reach the people that need it. Um, so we did want to move to your book, Centering Black Narrative, Centering the Black Narrative, which you have in two parts. So could you tell us a bit about those two books? Well, both of those books were co-written uh, with Sidi Ahmed Mubarak, who's based in the uh, Chicago land area. So we came out with Centering Black Narrative, Black Muslim Nobles Among the Early Pious Muslims in February of 2017. And then in the past uh, month and a half, uh, a little over a month, I should say, we came up with volume two, which is Centering Black Narratives, Ahlubayt, Blackness, and Africa. Um, mm-hmm. So the uh, objective of writing volume one, I would say, is that number one, we felt that history needed to be presented more accurately for the sake mm-hmm. of truthfulness, because mm-hmm. we believe that many Muslims and they, how they view the, 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 the companions uh, uh, that they have a whitewashed view of the companions. Uh, that movie, The, the Message, yeah. actually uh, inadvertently added on to that where they had um, mm. 
Sumeya, who's the first martyr amongst the companions, had her look like a Greek woman, and she was, you know, Ethiopian lineage. She was mm-hmm. clearly a black woman. Wow. I, you know, they, and had and had Yasser and Amada bin Yasser looking looking like Greeks. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, a lot of that stuff had infiltrated Muslims. So you know, mm-hmm. we wanted to just clarify the record that, you know, there were more black companions than just Bilal, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of times Muslims will reference that who are Arab and South Asian. When, you, when we talk about, oh, we need to address anti-black racism in the community, they'll say, oh, we know, uh, you know, you, you know, oh, you know, we're not racist, but we love Bilal. Right. You know, so, you know, Bilal, and, and we didn't mention Bilal in our book intentionally, mm-hmm. not out of disrespect, in high maqam, but simply... You know, we believe that Bilal has been tokenized, mm-hmm. and we didn't have Bilal in volume one. Mm-hmm. Um, although we did mention his mother, Hamama, okay. uh, because mm-hmm. many people, when they talk about Bilal, they don't know that his mother, as well as his sister, Gufera, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, had also accepted Islam. Mm-hmm. So that's something a lot of people don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one reason. The other thing is that we believe that uh, writing about this is a type of medicine that's needed for African-American Muslims yeah. or Muslims who are black because the reality is that the, the trauma of what we've gone through as a people has produced in, in various types of ways inferiority complexes and even mm-hmm. types of like black self-loathing. Yeah. And this has been written about before, we're not the first people to write about this. El Jair, who was a contemporary of Ahmed bin Hanbal, uh, wrote about this issue going back to like the fourth generation, fifth generation of, of, of Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jalaluddin Esuyuti uh, 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 wrote a couple of books about Muslims who were black. Uh, Ibn El Jawzi, a uh, Hanbali, wrote a book uh, about uh, blackness. And uh, in Ibn El Jawzi, you know, even saved the reason about why he wrote about this, because he talked about, he ran across a, <clears throat> a, a, a Muslim who was black in Sham, who was involved in, in self-loathing and self-deprecation because of his blackness mm-hmm. and being around lighter-skinned Arabs, right? So this is what oh, spurred wow. him on to write the book, Tanwil Habish Fi Palit Sudan Wahabish. So this is another reason why we wrote it. And then third, since everyone is woke these days and involved in the social justice movement and Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. we decided that we wanted to write something that was Islamically based, mm-hmm. that was, okay, you want to say Black Lives Matter or be concerned mm-hmm. about blackness, well, let's learn about some of the awliya of Allah who in fact were black and let's mm-hmm. look at some of the some of the contributions they made or some of the spiritual, some of their spiritual inclinations. Right. Right. right, so that was the that was the other reason why we wrote uh, volume one. Mm-hmm. Uh, volume two is a continuation of volume one. Mm-hmm. Uh, though in volume two, as is mentioned, Ahlubayt, we wrote about Ahlubayt meaning the household and the descendants of the Prophet, mm-hmm. We wrote about this because we felt and we believed that for various historical reasons that there's been uh, a neglect and almost a marginalization of Ahlul Bayt amongst Sunni Muslims. Okay. So we wanted to talk about uh, them 
the merits that are given to them, the Quran and the authentic hadith, and discuss them. And we start off with Sayyidina Ali. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him. And we end the book off um, chronological order. We go from Sayyidina Ali to uh, Sheikh Ahmadu Bamba. As far as those who have lineage going back to the Prophet Ahmadu Bamba, of course, was a great uh, 19th century uh, scholar of West African Senegal who resisted uh, French colonialism in Senegal and was... Um, and was uh, deported uh, or sent into exile in the, in the country of Gabon. Hmm. Were, when you were doing your research, were you at all surprised by the number of people from Ahribayt and the companions who were black or of African descendant, or did you expect to find what you found? <clears throat> um, I knew about some of them. Uh, what I did not know was to, I did not know was the extent of a number of people who were uh, who were Arab uh, in their lineage who were phenotypically described or be or, or would phenotypically look like the average African American like yourself or myself. Mm-hmm. Now that is something. Even though I had knowledge about how Arabs were predominantly described as is either uh, a similar Udma as brown or dark brown. Okay. Um, to the extent of the number of the companions and Tabi'in who weren't just of like Nubian or Ethiopian background, but who were actually Arabs who had even Arab mothers and Arab fathers, mm-hmm. right? Who were described as being very dark in skin color, black in skin mm-hmm. color, and having uh, kinky hair, or it's also called mm-hmm. Jad, mm-hmm. Uh, having hair that's Jad. Um, that is something that I was not aware of until uh, a lot of like reading in various texts and also talking with one of my um, with one of my teachers and him mm-hmm. uh, actually uh, pointing me to some other resources. Mashallah, alhamdulillah. Um, I ask that because I remember in um, Sheikh Akram's book, Akram's book about women who were muhaddith then he said he didn't expect to find the number that he found and it actually became a book that were that was um like filled with volumes i don't know how many volumes it is because it's not translated so sometimes um unfortunately sometimes certain groups have just been overlooked their histories lost and so books like yours are so valuable in just taking that history again and taking another look and as you said, for black people to not feel this inferiority um, within Islam, to not think that um, our history is just filled with Arabs and not significant contributions by black people. And um, I, I just also ask you, do you think that maybe even a part of why we are somewhat disconnected from that history is this disconnection that we have from Africa in general? Um, well, there's a few things. The first is, I, I'm going to get back to something you said. I also okay. think that one of the things that we tried to do in our book was to show that it's a myth that Arabness and Blackness are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Right? So, in the, amongst the early Arabs, uh, Blackness was predominant amongst the early Arabs, and it wasn't until Islam spread into areas like Persia mm-hmm. and 
Bilal Sham Greater Syria, uh, and, and Arab men actually preferring uh, Armenian and Turkish concubines, the Arabs mm-hmm. began to actually get lighter in their in their physical appearance over centuries. The Arabs were predominantly mm-hmm. dark or black to begin with. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the proximity of Habasha in southern Arabia and Yemen actually is, is very close. And as uh, Arabs did not have uh, a connection per se to Europe, the, the one connection, culturally speaking, and even closest to proximity, uh, was Arabia to to the Horn of Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, even looking at Arabia and Africa as being disconnected is is something that I think we should historically like right. take a, take another look at. Right. But um, what I do think is also. Um, a, a, a limitation to why many of us don't know some of these things is that one, uh, if we go back, like, let's say our parents' generation, not that many of our parents' generation and those who became Muslims, like in the 60s or 70s, uh, had access to texts because they lacked comprehension of reading Arabic, right? Mm-hmm. So without without being able to read the, the, these texts, without having some command of the Arabic language, you know, it, our people aren't able to read these texts. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, the the people who translate a lot of books of Arabic texts into uh, English, mm-hmm. historically, uh, in the West, had a particular ideological slant and they weren't concerned about translating these types of things for us because they translated other things for us that fit into their own worldview. And particularly, right. I would say, from us, from a lot of the Salafi publications that yeah. got flooded in our, in our community in the 80s yeah. and 90s, right? It, it wasn't about trying to empower black people or to get black people connected back to their African roots. It was about connecting them to the so-called minhaj. Right. right. So I, I think those are very important. And it's also, by the way, also why many Sunni Muslims in America have been disconnected from Ahlul Bayt, right? Mm. It's because it's, and it's the same thing I would say even relating to celebrating Imam al-Nabawi. It's because within uh, Salafism or Salafi-influenced uh, thought, uh, these things were looked at as being blameworthy or to not to be dealt with uh, or dealt with in, in, in severe trepidation uh, because mm-hmm. to deal with these things would bring upon the accusation of being a deviant Sufi or being a deviant mm-hmm. Shia, yeah. right? And, and we know that the we know that the spiritual chains of the Torah of all of the all of the the Sufi orders back and connect to Ahlul Bayt. Like, mm-hmm. we know this, right? right. So uh, right. Yes, there are some right. ideological reasons why I think we don't know about some of these black characters and this blackness, as well as the disconnect from from Ahlul Bayt, from the household of the Prophet, so I don't think it's accidental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, that's that's an interesting connection that I never really thought of. Yeah, this combination of disconnect from 
Africa and a disconnect from Ahlul Bayt. It's kind of strange that those things kind of happened in the same time. I don't know if it's purposeful, but yeah, that that's a really good point. So I, I just wanted to move on um, to quickly get your thoughts on just some current social movements, ideas, and social problems and the way that they're affecting our community. So you mentioned the Women's March earlier. We're actually recording this on the day of the Women's March. And um, so what do you think about the Women's March in general? And I do want to specifically get your opinion. I saw that you tweeted about this as well. On this, um, Tamika Mallory, who's one of the leaders of the movement, and her being asked to step down because of her association with Louis Farrakhan. Okay, relating to the to the women's march, I think that there are some goals and um, and some objectives of the women's march that are actually uh, that are noble, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't have any problem with many of the uh, objectives of the of the Muslim, I mean, of the women's march. Mm-hmm. And I also think that there's nothing wrong with women having their own space. To, for women to amplify their voices and their specific concerns. I don't think that's anything. Uh, and I think that if one is a real man and confident in their manhood, I don't think that any man should feel intimidated by women mm. having their own platforms, their own marches. I right. don't think that's to, to, be in, to be intimidated by that or to lash out about that actually shows a lack of chivalry. It shows a lack mm. of manliness or, or, or a rajula. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it might be. I don't feel intimidated by it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say, though, is I I question the tying in of male chauvinism and such issues as police brutality and in the name of intersectionality, tying those in with being in favor of or promoting the trans movement, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Like I saw one of the spokesmen on TV saying, you know, we're against all types of racism, anti-Semitism, and, and transphobia. Well, mm-hmm. what, what does transphobia mean? Like, yeah. transphobia in that movement means more than just people beating up uh, people who identify as trans or people mm-hmm. um, not giving housing to trans people, which I think, you know, everyone is afforded you know, the, the right to, to shelter, everyone's for a right to safety. No one should be beat up on the street or should be killed. Mm-hmm. But but what they mean by transphobia is if you're not openly okay and propagating the rights of, of people to say they're trans and use mm-hmm. uh, bathrooms and locker rooms uh, different from their birth gender, mm-hmm. uh, to say that... Uh, uh, a person can be born a man and say they're a woman and then participate in a wrestling match or a track meet with, 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 with women yeah. when they're not really women. Yeah. Like, I, I, it's like they call being against that transphobia, and I think that's completely ridiculous. Well, so it gets worse that, than that, Imam Dawood, because even if you don't recognize their pronouns, there can be really right. harsh consequences. There was a man in, I think it was Britain, but somewhere in Europe, who, and it was a mistake. He didn't even do it on purpose. He called this trans man who didn't get the surgery, still looked like a woman. He called her a she 
and he was fired or put on probation at the time of his interview. So it it's that simple. If you don't acknowledge their pronouns, their version of reality, then you're essentially a threat to them. You're seen as participating just like someone who participates in an act of violence against them. To them, it's kind of all the same. Exactly, and and that's true too. And that's another point I take great exception to. Thank you for bringing that up. And so those are types of things that the women's movement that I have a, a, a problem with, as well as this whole idea. Well, you know, it, it, it you know men had their turn, so now mm-hmm. it's time for the women to lead and for men to step aside. I mean, first, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Uh, uh, where we're just going to push all men outside the social <laughs> political space. Two, uh, I, I don't think that uh, the answer to men being domineering or being abusive in some cases is, is in fact, calling for the emasculation of men, right? right. And then, two, I don't even think that that's even uh, politically viable, the, uh, speaking because our country is still made up half men, right? Yeah. So I don't think you can have any social change mm-hmm. just with one particular gender. Like, mm-hmm. we need gender harmony. We don't need gender... We don't need... Uh, we don't need um, one type of disrespect and one type of marginalization yeah. to be met with uh, a, a, another type, mm-hmm. even, if it's a, even if it's a lesser form. Mm-hmm. So these are, these are the issues I have with the Women's March. I mean, you know, but again, I think that many people who go uh, are well-meaning and many people don't buy into the entire platform, but mm-hmm. they feel that there needs to be change in society and, they, uh, and much of the people go are, are also protesting President Trump. Right. So uh, I don't have, uh, I'm not against the Muslim, I'm not against the Women's March. I would just say those who attach themselves to that movement within the Muslim community just to be a little more thoughtful about all, not just all of the platform, but even be a little thoughtful about the language that's being part mm-hmm. the language being. Now, Tamika Mallory and Mr. Louis uh, Farrakhan, in which he's not um, apologizing mm-hmm. for her attendance at the Savior Day. Um, and in my opinion, in my view, even if she were to apologize and totally or completely condemn Farrakhan, mm-hmm. that would still not be enough for those people who are uh, who are uh, against uh, her leadership and against mm-hmm. those. And the reason why I'm saying that is that uh, the, Mich- the Minnesota State Attorney General, Keith Ellison, our Muslim brother, mm-hmm. right, he came out and condemned Farrakhan. Mm-hmm. And he used to be in the nation, by the way. I know he said he wasn't, but he did used to be in the nation, okay? Mm-hmm. And he completely condemned Farrakhan. And even after condemning Farrakhan mm-hmm. and saying these things about him, they still called him an anti-Semite. Hmm, wow. He still lost a level of his support, and then they threw out that woman on him, claiming yeah. that, claiming that, claiming that he did this and that, and, and that ended up being a hoax. They ended up throwing that woman really? out there trying to trying to destroy his career, hmm. and uh, which, which which that ended up not being true. That was fake yeah. news that she put out, oh. you know, and that whole Me Too thing that mm-hmm. that, that popped off. So. 
he still became a target. And I believe that Tamika would have said, you know what, Farrakhan's no good, and I totally condemn him, and I had nothing to do with anyone in the nation of Islam anymore. They would still be attacking her. The sister went, yeah. the, the sister was on their radar anyway because she went with, with the delegation to Palestine. You know, she she wrote she's, she's in favor wow. of BD, she's in favor of BDS, which of course okay. also Linda Sarsour, who is her wow, who's her um who one who's one of her best friends is Palestinian, also a supporter mm-hmm. of BDS, and also being so, asked to step down. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So mm-hmm. so so they were gonna get Tamika was gonna get attacked mm-hmm. regardless. Wow, right. Funny. So that's so. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think she needs to condemn Farrakhan, right. even though I disagree with with, 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 with some things that Farrakhan said. Mm-hmm. But then again, I, I disagree with Farrakhan's Akita, which is the most important part. Right, of course. You know, I disagree, I disagree with his shirk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that to me, it's kind of one of the double standards I I believe exists between, or I should say unfair double standards that exist between white people and black people is that she's being asked to condemn Farrakhan as a person (laughs) you know not just to condemn his ideas which i believe she already has condemned his anti-semitism i don't think most black people agree with his anti-semitic comments but she's being asked to condemn him (laughs) and it's like well why should she condemn him in totality when we're all aware of black people of some of the great things he's done for black people right 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 and that is a double and that is a double standard but um it, it's, it's compounded, one, because that same litmus test did not help for white folks. But mm-hmm. the other part is she's not just black, she's a black woman. Yeah. So it, it, becomes double, it becomes doubly problematic for her that she's one of three people mm-hmm. to help organize the largest protest in yeah. American history. Yeah. Right? Uh, three, three women of color. And she's mm-hmm. one of the leaders of that. So... It, it, of course, she's a threat, and of yeah. course, they want to. They, they're going to apply a different standard to her than they would apply to 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 one of these other, um, uh, you know, uh, white folks who 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 actually associate more and even agree more with certain outrageous comments. Actually, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to move through some of these issues so what about the me too movement you mentioned it do you think it's generally a good positive movement and maybe just has some excesses or do you have a, any kind of fundamental issues with the movement well what i can say is that aggression and abuse that has taken place against women in workplaces on campuses is real Mm-hmm. And it has to be acknowledged that that has taken place. Uh, I would also say, though, that there began, when that movement started up, began to be a lynch mob type of mentality, right, where mm-hmm. um, accusations would be made without evidence or proof and people were let go of jobs mm-hmm. um, or, or um, had their reputations almost ruined. That happened here twice in the, in the city of Detroit um, mm-hmm. with two prominent uh, journalists, one by name Stephen Henderson, the African-American male who got who was the head editor of the Detroit Free Press. He was the top uh, uh, editor of the editorial board of a paper in America, a black man. He was let go and came to find out that the 
uh, allegations that were made against him weren't true. Uh, and this happened to different people around the country. I think in the wake of that, I think it's very unfortunate. Then I think, too, that there's something that needs to be brought up to those people who support the Me Too movement about is this helping their long-term interests. So on the one hand, mm. if we say that women are strong and women have their own agency, but then on the other hand, you paint women as being completely weak or completely helpless who were taken advantage of Mm -hmm. didn't have agency then it's kind of saying a mixed message so like let's say a woman that wants to have an acting career in hollywood right and we know there's something called the director's couch Mm -hmm. right the casting couch right Mm -hmm. so then the stipulation that you can get this starring role in this in this movie, if you if you sleep if you sleep with the director and the director says that, now he does have positional power, but yeah. there's nothing that says that you have to actually take your clothes off and, and, and give him some sex to get that job. Like if you have the power to get up and walk out, right? Right. And this is kind of some of the mixed messages that I've heard. Like yeah, like um, there are some cases of. Of, of rape, there are issues such as uh, as uh, Bill Cosby was convicted for putting quaaludes and, and right. drugging people unconscious and raping them. Right? Mm-hmm. Then there's other cases of people who said, you know, they, you know, the 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 the, the boss, the director, invited them to the to the uh, to, to the hotel room, and then they went into the hotel room and had sex with them more than one time, and then come out ten years later and said, "Me too." Um, like I, 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 I have, I don't think that those two are the same. Right. You know, I, I have trouble with this because I definitely think that women who are in the third wave feminism, um, it is, it does conflict with the idea of women's empowerment, though some of that may just be the difference between second wave and third wave feminism. Um, but I view men and women as different as women and women as weaker in some situations and, and men as weak in some situations. So there is a part of me that says if you're in this career space where it's where it's as it's like um all or most of the men are like this. So it's almost if if you didn't do that as a woman, of course you should have personal morals, but let's say we're talking about a non-Muslim. If you don't do that as a woman, you're not going to get the job. If you do it, you'll get the job. So yes, you have a choice, but it's a very difficult choice and it's a choice that you make kind of under a level of oppression. Yes, being aware you can get another job, but if that's your particular dream, it's almost as if if you don't do that, you're not going to get the job. So how, what do we say about that? How do we deal with that um, reality of the lack of power that women and maybe children as well have in some of these situations and, and kind of the lack of choice that they have or limited choice? Well, it's, it's, well it's really definitely wrong. And because I said that they're not the same, wasn't implying yeah. that the director, for instance, is somehow a good guy or absolved. I mean, he mm-hmm. definitely... He's definitely a, 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 a wrongdoer and a manipulator. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, this, this would sound radical, maybe even to some people in the Muslim community, but this is why we have in Islam, we have ahkam, and we have rulings about gender separation, about Absolutely. not being alone in certain spaces yeah. with men, about how we need to have 
a mushroom about how we have wara or have caution to not just have casual one-on-one conversation, even like in in, in the office with with a, a window, even though there could be a window where people look at with with, with a man uh, when you're trying to get a job, right? right. I mean, th- there's we have some basic things in our in, in our dean and our in, right. in our in our way of life that would would help protect from some of the spiritual abuse. And then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this may, at the risk of sounding like a male chauvinist, that uh, as I do think that people should have the right to explore any career option they, they, they wish, whether you have the right and whether it's wise to do so or maybe two different things. Yeah. Right, like, 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 maybe there are some spaces that may mm-hmm. not be the best spaces for sisters to look for employment to get jobs. Right, because yeah. because yeah. there are di- because there are, because there are dyna- dynamics that are set up that may compromise hmm. the, 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 the 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 sister's dignity. Right, right. And, and 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 I believe, uh, as the Quran says, yes, it calls for personal accountability. For people not to behave in certain ways, it also calls for us to protect ourselves from certain things. It's like mm-hmm. it's even like the hadith, it, it, like trust in God and tie your own camel. Like you can take your own precautions to protect your own personal interests. You just right. can't leave your own personal interests to the to the inclinations of other people who are supposed to be on good behavior. Because everyone's Absolutely. not going to be on good behavior. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I definitely so again, agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what I was saying. So some people say, "Oh, that's male chauvinist," and you know, you know, what do you know, you know, men, men should just not be trash and keep their hands to themselves. Right. Yes, that's true, but that's not mm-hmm. reality. It's not going to happen 100 percent across the board. And women need to do and take certain precautions and keep certain things in mind mm-hmm. to protect their their dignity and, in fact, even sometimes their safety. Right, right, and and you know the kind of ironic thing about that is, if men, which which I think can happen really begin to fear um, being another me too so that they take more precautions than women complain about, which is already happening the other hand. So the man is not, the boss is not going to take his female, um, not coworker, but let's see if he's the boss, his female employee to dinner because he doesn't want to be accused of me too or because he simply doesn't want the temptation. She's not going to be invited to the golf golf game or whatever they call it so it's kind of a strange thing because in one sense in trying to protect from sexual harassment then there can be discrimination on the other end but I suppose it just speaks to the fact that men and women simply aren't the same and so these precautions they have to be had one way or the other yeah, and men have to protect themselves too in two different ways. And you mentioned one. So, like for instance, when you try to observe these, uh, there was a prominent columnist here in Detroit who got upset mm-hmm. with me because I she used to co-host a, a TV show, and I came into the set and I didn't shake her hand. Okay. So she got highly offended because I didn't shake her hand. Mm-hmm. And then for that, she told the producer, which one of the producers of the show told me later. I, I I didn't get back on the show for wow, three years until she left the show wow. because she called me she called me a, a male chauvinist who who likes <laughs> to see women 
in in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant. Like, give me a judgment about that simply because I just don't make it as a habit to shake hands with women, right? right? So then um, it is much rarer, but we've also had some cases, when we're talking about positional power, we've had some cases, of course, not nowhere as many as men do it to women, but we've had cases of women exerting positional power or, or, or influence to make advances against men that are unwarranted. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we have a story about this in the Quran, in the 12th mm-hmm. chapter of the Quran, Surah Yusuf. Surah Yusuf was me too. He yeah, was him exactly. too. Mm-hmm. Yusuf mm-hmm. was him too. Yeah. So it, 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 it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen with mm-hmm. women only. It's predominantly women, but men can also get them get themselves caught up in yeah. certain situations as well Absolutely. from from uh, from aggressive and, and, and frisky females. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and in some ways, I mean, men have their own particular issue with this, and that in our society, then you're <clears throat> almost seen as effeminate, or even sometimes accused of being gay, especially in younger years. If you don't accept that um, that kind of what can we call it harassment or that kind of forwardness from women, so there definitely is an issue on both sides. So I think that it's a bit of a bigger issue for women, Allahu Um But I wanna. Well, it's, it's, yeah. it's a lot bigger issue for women. Okay. It's a lot bigger issue, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know if you've heard of this movement. It's an online movement, but I asked about it because it does seem to have had some influence on Muslim men. So have you heard of either the incel movement or MGTOW? I've never heard of either. No, okay. Okay, alhamdulillah, so we'll skip that. Um, What about this concept of toxic masculinity? So just for our listeners, toxic masculinity, um, according to my Google search, they emphasize, excuse me, that it is against, okay, it's talking about gender role strain. So defined as a psychological situation where the gender role demands have a negative consequence on the individual or others. Gender role conflicts defined as problems resulting from adherence to rigid sexes or restrictive gender roles learn through social socialization that result in personal restrictions, evaluation, or violation of others or self. Some have said it seems to be just against this idea of toxic masculinity, seems to be solely against traditional men and traditional male roles. Others say it's just against the excesses of masculinity. Um, have you ever dealt with this movement or talked about it? And what's your view on it? Not the movement, but this concept. Uh, I've heard uh, about this nerd just mentioned, and I would suggest in a future show, you would contact um, the brother who uh, is one of the leaders of the uh, of the uh, American Muslim Psychological Association, Dr. Halim Naim. Oh, have a conversation God. specifically about this. Mm-hmm. He's also based in Detroit area. Um, but first of all, I have a problem with the nomenclature. And, okay. uh, and as I mentioned more than one time, that words matter and definitions matter. Mm-hmm. So to me, toxic masculinity is, to me, problematic, like the term radical Islam. Okay. Right? It's, 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 it's almost contradictory. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like I don't like the framework of 
framing something that's masculine as being described as toxic or masculinity. Okay. I have a problem with it. Just like I just just as I think that Islam in of itself is by definition the moderate way, peaceful and not radical. Yeah. By definition, masculinity, which is a divine construct, uh, Allah is the one who created masculinity, or or He is the one who created the zakar. Uh, that it is attaching toxic to it is actually uh, contradictory. Right, okay. so I, I think there should be another term that's, that is used. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that uh, Muslims who use need to be careful of not playing into other people's uh, agendas. Okay. And we've talked enough about this as far as yeah. uh, Marxist thought and mm-hmm. tearing down uh, all social hierarchies and even a movement to uh, make men more uh, feminine or. Right to erase gender roles and have everything being unisex or gender neutral. Um, uh, Allah made the male female, uh, and there is a general disposition that Allah gave uh, more of the Jalali traits to males and more of the Jamali traits to women. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we believe, our theologians have talked about this, and I just don't accept uh, some non-Muslims to be with Marxist thought trying to redefine uh, how we look at traditional gender roles, mm-hmm. starting with the the gender role set by the Prophet mm-hmm. and what he exhibited, and his wife, the best of his the best of his wives, Khadija, which she exhibited. Anything right. that goes contradictory to those, I'm not interested in entertaining and propagating, mm-hmm. uh, which includes language that may even feed into something uh, counter to that. Now, of course, there are men who are abusive. There are men who take machismo and use it as a term, as a way of, of, of being uh, violent and being harsh to women, but I would say that that is not true masculinity, right? That is, that is something else. That's mm-hmm. not, I would not call that toxic masculinity, nor would I call a, what would be called alpha man, a traditional man who wants to go out and earn the halal bacon, who wants to stand up and protect his woman with Hera or his woman who doesn't want men saying something crazy to, to his wife right. or his daughters. And if someone comes to train, he wants to go and protect his wife at night from some sort of physical harm or violence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And then and if that's what they're calling toxic masculinity, then that is really trying to, that's really trying to devalue what our prophet did and what he, mm-hmm. and really what he taught his companions. Yeah. Yeah. Mashallah. So I think the last thing we'll touch on that you've kind of touched on a bit is about gender roles. And I, I would definitely suggest anyone listen to, um, I may forget the name, but it's something about gender roles with Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad. I'll try to remember to link it below. But it just talks a bit deeper about more of the divine nature of masculinity and femininity. Because as you touched on, there's this Marxist idea that everything is socially constructed and we can just unconstruct it. And it doesn't consider some of the deeper values of gender. So what would you say 
what is basically the Islamic idea about gender and gender roles? Well, uh, there has been certain uh, first leanings and dispositions within inside the bodies that we, our souls reside in, be they masculine or feminine, that are, that are more predominant. Uh, there's, and within these uh, bodies and this divine construct of gender, uh, both men and women have been given certain fadal, certain virtues over the other, mm-hmm. and also has been given a level of rights and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Right, and this is and, and and this is very clear. I mean, we'll start from instance the 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 maqam of women, and especially mothers. Like for instance, mm-hmm. uh, our our prophet mm-hmm. said that paradise resides under the feet of mothers. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't say Jannah resides under the feet of fathers. Mm-hmm. Right? We know that when when the when the Sahabi asked about who had more right to our attention or to our, our company, he said, right? It's your mother, your mother, your mother, and your father. There's a certain level of, 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 of deference and a certain level of, of attention uh, that uh, a mother uh, has been favored with her children that simply is a spiritual connection that is not equal to the father. That's mm-hmm. just that's just reality, yes. and and as it should and as it should be, because the mother is the one who carried the, and when the Quran talks about this, who carried the, mm-hmm. the 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 baby during those three stages in the womb, and then she nursed the baby for a certain period of time, uh, and that's something that is within human beings. Likewise, likewise, the issue of maha, like it's, it's an Islamic obligation that. Men pay women the dowry. Women mm-hmm. don't pay men dowry, right? right? That's a that's a that's a fuddle that Allah gave to women over men. Likewise, men or husbands in particular. This verse is is translated literally. It's where it starts off arijalu mm-hmm. that men are the maintainers or protectors of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, really. That that verse should be better translated. That husbands are the are the main pins of protectors of their wives, mm. right? And because Allah gave them a degree of uh, of strength, and that they spend on what Allah has given them, right? So mm. the right of nafaka or spending, if 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 a wife turns over her wealth uh, or spends, that is that is a salaka. Uh, for her and a, and a hadiyah mm-hmm. or a gift to her husband, but that's not a right that's on her, but it is a right mm-hmm. of a husband that he protects his wife because of her harm and that he spends mm-hmm. on her. And like, so these are, these, these aren't, these just aren't man-made constructs. These are divine mm-hmm. constructs that are given in the Quran, mm-hmm. right? And so with these virtues also, and I mentioned uh, with the mothers and women as well as the men and the husbands, with these virtues, there also comes a responsibility with these. It isn't just that there's there's a virtue that's given. Yeah, the virtue is given, but there's a responsibility that's attached to the virtue that must be acted upon and must be fulfilled, mm-hmm. right? So um, I don't know if I answer your question if I'm filibustering, but it is to say <laughs> that, 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 yes, that, 
men and women are not exactly the same. Even if the eye of the Quran says, then the male's not like the female. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, even the eye of the Quran says this, right? Mm-hmm. But Allah gave women certain virtues that He did not give the men. Men were given certain virtues that women don't have. Mm-hmm. And with these, with the, Jamal, with the Jalalis and Jamali, then we have uh, we have balance. Right. 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 Well, this is this is what keeps the balance. Uh, this mm-hmm. is what keeps the mizad. Uh, or with Chinese or Confucius, it would be the yin and the yang. Mm-hmm. Now, if we have everyone trying to be Jalali and there's no yeah. Jamali, then the balance is going to be off. Absolutely. And then this is where we have chaos in society, which I see right now. Mm-hmm. And actually, our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he predicted this mm-hmm. in the hadith that the scholars quote is authentic that that one of the signs of, of, of the hour would be that men would imitate women and women would imitate mm-hmm. men. And mm-hmm. and Allah, mm-hmm. he didn't say this was cross-dressing or trans movement. He said that, he said when you would see men beginning to imitate women in their roles, in their gender roles, and you see women mm-hmm. begin to imitate mm-hmm. men wow. in their in their role. And when that becomes wow. predominant, then you know that the hour of the world's about the end. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and and that's what we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. Um the Prophet on Islam says there would come a time there would come a time uh where uh women would outnumber men to the point that it would be as if one Rajul Tayyim, one upright man, mm-hmm. would need to be responsible for Hamseen, 50 women. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We're, almost at, we're almost at that time right now. Mm. We're almost at that time right now where, where and, and, and notice the Hadith didn't say that there was 50 men to every, to every man. It says fifty women for every upright man mm, who's going to be who's right. going to be who's going to be uh, who's going to be up the tall I mean. Right, subhanallah. Yeah. Right, right. So because him, like he's going to be an upright man who mm-hmm. can stand up and fulfill his duty and responsibility. This is why I'm coming. Uh, I know this is probably for another subject, but it's, it is inevitable that in our community, those men who are who are responsible and who are upright spiritually and who can uh handle their proper marital responsibilities it's going to come a time where where polygamy is going to be more practiced in our community hmm. i i i i i'm necessity and i think that some sisters are going to, they're going to go along with it right i think they're going to go along with it um Obviously, I'm not talking about secret marriages or, right. or like, or like how we have in Detroit, where brother talking about he's going on tablique and he got three wives and he sends down to the welfare office and stuff like that. Now, I'm not talking about yeah. that, 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 that ghetto hood. <laughs> exactly. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I'm talking about somebody who is working and has a spouse, and then there's another sister who's had some children and she's divorced, and maybe she has a job. And, mm-hmm. and she just needs a little bit of help, mm-hmm. and she can't find uh, a, a, a decent man that's trustworthy that she trusts around her children. Mm-hmm. That might be the sister who, who ends up, you know, there may be an arrangement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, that that, that day's going to come eventually. But mm-hmm. that's for that's perhaps for another conversation. 
Yeah, I really, Hamnina, appreciate you being on and being patient with the podcast, being on for so long, Hamnina. We didn't plan it for this for it to be so long, but we really learned a lot from this discussion. So I know that people will benefit, inshallah ta'ala. And I think what you said about the deeper gender role, it, it definitely is beneficial because as you said, when people are fighting for justice, they have to know what justice even means. So you can't fight for any kind of justice or um, maybe in particular gender justice if you don't even know what justice is. So I think that's really valuable. Your book, Sacred Activism, which I think would be beneficial for anyone to pick up, but especially if you're just coming into the activist space, would be Sacred um, Activism. It's available at mechabooks.com. And then your two books on centering, let's see, on centering the black narrative. Uh, both available on Amazon, and then you guys can follow him at Dawood Walid or on his website, DawoodWalid.com. And on Facebook, is it also Dawood Walid without a space? Yes, it, yes it is. Yeah, okay. same on Facebook. So also Facebook.com slash Walid. Thank you guys for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Jazakallah khair, <laughs>